Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The seventh speaker at this year's conference is M.J. Tro. Mr. Tro has written highly praised historical biographies as well as studies of true crime. He is also a very successful novelist. Among his most recent books are War Crimes, Underworld Britain in the Second World War, Foul Deeds and Suspicious Deaths in the Isle of Wight, and Interpreting the Ripper Letters, which is the subject of this talk. The next talk is by Mitro, which is, who sat in front of me, who has written a highly praised historical biographies as well as studies of true crime. He's also a very successful novelist. He's written lives on Boudicca, <coughs> Vlad the Impaler, Kit Marlowe, and the Hero of the Charge of the Light Brigade, Captain William Morris. Among his recent books are War Crimes, Underground Britain in the Second World War, you know this, I know, and Foul Deeds and Suspicious Deaths in the Isle of Wight. He has also produced the best-selling accounts of criminal cases, in particular volumes of <coughs> David Bentley, uh, sorry, Derek Bentley. David Bentley used to play for, he used to play for Blackburn. <laughs> <laughs> the Wigwam Murder and Jack the Ripper. But he is best known for his famous novels, including the Lestrade and Maxwell series. Uh, May will be talking today about the Jack the Ripper uh, letters and how they should be interpreted. Thank you, my friend. People, I'm, I'm always terrified when uh, I stand up in front of you guys because you all know more about this than I do. I'm going to tilt this down because I'm a short ass. Okay, is that, is that all right? Can you all hear me now? Yeah, brilliant. Okay, fine. Uh, my other problem, apart from being a short ass, is that uh, I also have a dread of technology. So I'm going to press a button, and if nothing happens or the wrong thing happens, I've got to apologise, and I will then pass it across to somebody, anybody, who knows what they're doing. Okay? Um, right. Uh, the Ripper Letters. No, mine is far from the first book on the subject. We all know The Great One by Stuart & Co., uh, which is an absolutely brilliant book. Um, and uh, I can't really hope to build on that, but what occurred to me... The world we live in now, which is full of uh, trolls via the internet, we've been here before, and we were here in the Victorian period. Today, you simply click a button, and you can be as offensive as you like to anybody you like, about anything you like, and the chance of the police or anybody else tracing you are pretty well zil. So, that's my starting point. The Victorians were doing it a long, long time ago, except they used different technology. It's almost as if you choose a name at random and you can point the finger at that person and say, ha ha, he was Jack the Ripper. So what I want to do is to run through that uh, very quickly with you. And first of all, uh, the monikers that you find on the original letters. You've all heard of these, but are <coughs> awful. George of the High Rip, Jack the Conqueror, T. Bulling, <laughs> uh, Leather Apron, The Whore Killer, Isidore Vesivere, 
Bill the Bowler, Mr. Englishman, an accessory, Jack, a Poland Jew, the Beaster, Mathematician, Joe the Catsmeat Man, the Black Brunswick Boy, Jim the Cutter, Brummagem Bill the Slaughterman. All those, and several more, occur at the end of the letters that were sent, either to the police or to the press in the Autumn of Terror. And none of them, of course, caught on like Jack the Ripper. And the psychology of that I find absolutely fascinating. Something like 95% of the other letters are signed by Jack or variants thereof. Jack, of course, I have to explain to various people, uh, especially young people, uh, was once the common version of John, which was then, in 1888, the most common English Christian name. So it was a very clever choice on the part of somebody. Choice of who remains to be seen. And I don't think we'll ever probably find out who that who was. Now I'm going to start to press a key. Bear with me. Yay. It's nothing, really. <laughs> <laughs> now, some of you already won't know what this is. Looking around at your average age, nothing personal to any of you. I think you'll all have seen something like this before. It is called a postage stamp. Uh, and it's what we used to put on letters and postcards when we used to send them to our nearest, dearest, or the police, uh, or Fleet Street, uh, in order to name somebody who might have been Jack or perhaps to claim that you were Jack yourself. Uh, we've now moved on to the technological age, so it's all done by the internet and the press of a button, like what I just did. And it is, I must confess, if you know what you're doing, a lot easier than having to go to a post office, buy a stamp, lick it, lick it. DNA, Patricia Cornwell. <laughs> let's, let's not go there. Uh, and uh, away you send your letter. So there's one, uh, and straight away you think, oh, well, that's brilliant. A clever detective can trace these letters and postcards easily because, of course, they've got a date stamp on them. Yeah, well, I'll give you a carrot if you can read what that date stamp says. It's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Because it's a Friday afternoon stamp, clearly. Somebody wrote like so, uh, and we can't read it, especially we can't read it 120 years later. So we have great difficulty in actually deciding when these letters were sent, where they were sent, and so they don't actually help us a great deal. Okay, I'm now going to try that magic trick again. And that is what you put the thing into. <laughs> Once you have stuck the stamp onto the postcard or letter, you put it inside an envelope, not a postcard, a letter, uh, and you put it inside one of these. It is a post box. Notice I've chosen the Victorian one here, VR. Uh, there are still a handful of those around, but they are declining, ladies and gentlemen. Look at it now, because within 20 years, you won't see any of them. They will have gone. And you'll be telling your children and grandchildren, I remember when. Uh, trust me, I was horrified walking down Petticoat Lane a second ago to see those, what are they, buildings? Unbelievable! The high-rise crap with which they're destroying the East End of London. I could not believe it. So it's all vanishing, it's all changing, it's all going. Uh, and the post boxes are going with them. But that is where the hoax ripper letters were posted, somewhere like that. 
In one case, somebody was so mean, they actually didn't stick a stamp on it, they drew a stamp. <laughs> Very well done, actually. It looks like the real thing, but it ain't. Uh, and somebody also left a letter outside the post box, outside 6 Vincent Square, without putting it inside. You can't actually make it up. I would love to be able to challenge the IQ of some of these senders. It was pretty low, I would think. And this is the headquarters of the General Post Office. There used to be eight deliveries a day in London. Does anybody work for the post office here? Right, Lindsay Sibbett. Oh, oh, postal, no, that doesn't count, I think. No, I want somebody who actually puts his hand in a letterbox and gets stuff out. I used to. Yeah. I, I did. Richard used to. He should yeah, be ashamed of himself. <laughs> right, okay. Well, times have changed, haven't they? Because I live on the Isle of Wight, which is the hub of the universe, as we all know. Uh, and we get one delivery a day, which comes any time between half past twelve and three o'clock, or not. I'm not on Wednesdays. No. That's true. Uh, but eight deliveries a day in London, perhaps six in the suburbs, and therefore at eight o'clock at night you were still receiving the post. They were what we call the good old days. Absolutely marvellous. By the way, if you're into your Cleveland Street scandal, this was also the home of God knows how many rent boys. Uh, they were so uh, shockingly badly paid uh, that they supplemented their income in certain ways I won't go into. But Inspector Aberline was onto that one, so all was good. <laughs> Jack the Ripper is not real. The Whitechapel murderer is real. Jack the Ripper was invented here, in Fleet Street. And if we could, there are a number of people you're going to see in a minute, um, who, whose bodies I, I would like to see suffer what they used to do to baddies in the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, which is to drag, tie them at a cart's tail, strip to the waist, and drag them around the streets. If they're dead, even better. Dig them up, drag them around the streets. Oliver Cromwell. Uh, and whoever wrote the Jack the Ripper letter worked here. It might have been Thomas Bulling, might have been his boss John Moore from the Central News Agency, we don't know. But he is a journalist, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind about that. The whole thing reeks of journalese, and I have to concede that Jack the Ripper is the most brilliant moniker of all time. There are no other killers who have quite cornered the market in that way. And to be fair to Jack, he was guilty of murder, but he wasn't guilty of these letters. He did not coin the phrase at all, a journalist did. So this is where Jack the Ripper was born. He is actually a creature of fiction, just like Hannibal Lecter. In that sense, he's not real at all. And it makes life difficult for you and me trying to find out who the real guy was, because we're having to fight our way through all this fiction first. So this is the one, it wasn't the first one, as we know, um, but uh, this is the one that made his reputation, the Dear Boss Letter. Now these letters have been analysed and reanalyzed countless times. I'm sure you've done it yourself. Uh, what do the words mean? First of all, note the colour. The idea is that many of these letters were written in human blood. 
There is no evidence that any of the letters were written in blood at all. In fact, uh, as my wife has told me several times, she's a hematologist sitting here in front of you, if you want to ask her questions later about what blood does um, as it, as it uh, solidifies, you're very welcome. You cannot keep it fresh. You cannot use it. Uh, as, in fact, Jack says, uh, the sticky red stuff. Uh, it doesn't stay sticky. It doesn't stay red. It goes brown and solid. Uh, and you simply can't use it to write letters. And maybe human blood stains on some of the letters, um, but it is much more likely to be animal blood. Back in 1888, it wasn't possible for scientists to tell the one from the other. But here it is. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed and they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. Track, somebody once said. It's a railway policeman. Of course it is. How brilliant. Why didn't we think of that? Um, that joke about leather apron. Poor old leather apron. John Pizer. What, what a break, you know? He may have been deranged. Half the East End seemed to be deranged back in 1888. But the man was just a patsy. He was put in the frame uh, because he was uh, peculiar in the way that he behaved. Uh, and therefore he became, thanks to Fleet Street, uh, a suspect. And therefore the joke about leather apron. And the journalist who wrote that knew perfectly well it was, it was a joke. So he was able to say so. I am down on whores. That's the great line, isn't it? That gives us a motive straight away. This man detests prostitution, and he wants to stop it any way he can. Peter Sutcliffe, who I'll come on to later on, that was another case in point. The street cleaner, he wanted to, to clean the streets of Bradford. Um, a long, long time ago, um, I went to a party with my good lady wife, uh, and there was a man looking at me rather strangely. And I thought, hello, my luck's changed a little bit. <laughs> uh, so later in the party, I went over to him and I said, uh, hello. And he said, hello, uh, I'm the assistant warden at Parker's prison. I said, are you really? How exciting. He said, you're not Peter Sutcliffe, are you? <laughs> and I said, no, should I be? He said, I hope not, because we've got him inside at the moment. <laughs> but apparently when I had dark beard, dark hair. I did not look unlike Peter Sutcliffe and Bob, who we got to know very well later on, uh, recognised the fact that I did look very like that guy. So there we are, it's my one claim to fame. I look like a famous serial killer. It's nothing really, I'll sign autographs later. <laughs> now, the artwork. Um, I mentioned somebody called, oh, what's the name? Patricia Cornwell. Um, <laughs> earlier, and uh, as you know, she has a little bit of a theory about Walter Sickert, who I will agree was a pain in the ass. Oh, sorry, this is being recorded, isn't it? I do apologise. Pain in the posterior. Uh, but he wasn't Jack the Ripper. But let's assume that he was. Could a bona fide artist, actually Sickert's a very good artist, could he actually produce crap like that? No. It is very, very difficult if you're a good artist to produce poor art. And the Ripper letters are full of poor art. This is not too bad, actually, but the images are so stereotypical. We have a skull and crossbones, which uh, are the symbol for death over many, many centuries. The halo is peculiar. No one has ever explained exactly what that's doing there. We've got a coffin. 
we have got crossed daggers because Jack of course used a knife and therefore that's acceptable and we've got the most appalling drawing of a skeleton I have ever seen in my life clearly not drawn by an anatomist and the Ripper letters are full of images like that now we come to Mr. Hutchinson and his suspect the man made it up okay he may have seen somebody with Mary Kelly on the night she died, uh, but he sure as hell didn't look like that. That was somebody Hutchinson knew. He knew what clothes he wore, he describes it in mind. <coughs> Human beings make terrible eyewitnesses. If somebody burst in through that door now with a machine gun and raked us all, and those of us survived, told the police what that guy looked like, we would have 25 different versions of what that person looked like. Uh, because we don't take things in, we don't see clearly, we don't remember uh, from one day to the next. So whoever Hutchinson is describing, that is not the man with Mary Kelly, that is somebody I suspect he personally disliked and he wanted to make life difficult for him. So there he is and he's veering towards the toff. He's veering towards the top hat, the cape, the traditional image that everybody except people in this room have, I hope, have of Jack the Ripper. Now, if only someone had looked properly at this one, because there he is. If the police, if people from Charles Warren right down to the average Bobby on the beat had looked closely at this letter, they would have seen exactly what Jack looks like. It's a self-portrait. This is my photo of Jack the River. Now, I'm assuming photo meant close likeness rather than actual photograph, because clearly it isn't, it's a drawing. Ten more, and up goes the sponge. It's a boxing metaphor. Throw in the towel, up goes the sponge. It was going to kill ten more people. Uh, and then he's going to call a halt. Now, if you look at Punch, and you should, you should look at Punch before you go to bed every night, because it is brilliant, uh, you will find dozens of images like that. It was the traditional way of showing a criminal. They are all shown with great bull necks, huge, almost ape-like jaws, uh, unshaven, wild, staring eyes. So, of course, criminals look like that. And of course, Jack the Ripper, the serial killer of Whitechapel, looks like that. All they had to do was look at that and they could have picked the guy up. Instead of which, they pick up dozens of people uh, for no reason whatsoever, just in the fond hope that maybe they were the person Mrs. Fiddymont saw covered in blood, or, or maybe it's the white-eyed man, or hey, who knows, has he got an arm, he's got two arms, two legs, a head? Probably the guy. Um, it's the best art we have, by the way. Of all the Ripper letters, this is the most professional, the most superbly done. Was this done by Walter Sickert? Give me a break. <laughs> Charles Warren. Um, there's been a general trend, I've noticed, uh, over the last um, several Ripper books of, of feeling a bit sorry for Charles, uh, because after all, you know, he wasn't actually going round the streets, he wasn't actually involved in the case directly, he just happened to be the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Did I mention Nick? Did I mention anything about Operation Midland? Anything along those lines? No! No, that would be far too political and far too recent, so I won't mention that. 
But the man at the top carries the can. That's how it is, that's how it's always been. And Charles Warren carried the can, not just for his failure to catch Jack the Ripper, if you look at it in those simplistic terms, but his failure to do a great deal about Black <coughs> Sunday in 1887. The man was a soldier and a part-time archaeologist. And of course this was the problem that until the 1930s all commissioners of the Met were soldiers. They had no police training whatsoever. He received 24 letters from Jack or people purporting to be Jack or people who had something to do with Jack because he was high profile, because he was in the media all the time. The media, we keep coming back, don't we, to Fleet Street all the time. So as flack goes, this is the guy who got most of it. This is the next guy, Fraser, of the city police. The city police seem to have had uh, rather more gentle letters. Um, technically, of course, it was only Kate Eddowes uh, who died within the city uh, jurisdiction, so the other killings uh, were down to the Met. Uh, when I began to research the repo a long, long time ago, and I honestly can't remember what my first book on Jack was, I think it was Donald Rumbler, um, I believed that the city force and the Met did not work together on this. Such was the rivalry that they actually didn't share information. I now know that is not true, and they did. Uh, whenever they could, they had regular meetings involving Adeline and Swanson and just about everybody else uh, to make sure that they pooled resources, which is great, and which is how it would be done today. Um, but most of the letters directed to the city force were incredibly <coughs> helpful. Um, they were not vicious, they were not unpleasant. Uh, they were, have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about uh, putting steel collars around prostitutes' necks so that Jack can't actually cut their throats? Have you thought about using bloodhounds? And we know how that ended, don't we? Have you thought about a thousand and one ingenious systems uh, that would have caught uh, the murderer? Well, yes, the police had thought of those. Some of them they tried out, as in bloodhounds. Um, some of them they knew would be a complete and utter waste of time. Swanson, the man on the ground, first of all, and then the man who was in charge of the paperwork later on, replaced by Abilene, who came into the area because he knew Whitechapel so well. Again, he received letters too, because these men's names were in the press, in the way that policemen are not today. By and large now, the actual policemen investigating these cases are largely unknown. The police have learned, but it's not fair or safe uh, to start identifying who the detectives are who, who are handling operations. So they tend to play it down. And it is simply a force with a force spokesman who stands in front of a microphone like this and talks to the media. We've mentioned this guy already, um, Forbes Winslow. He was an alienist, as the Victorians called them, as we'd say today, a psychiatrist. And as somebody said uh, in one of these uh, letters, um, he has a peculiar mind. I've done it in that way because that's clearly how these people spoke. <laughs> he has a peculiar mind. Uh, yeah, I suppose he had, in that he could understand what made people tick who had uh, a mental illness. Um, but he himself was accused of being Jack the Ripper. He was also accused of writing Ripper letters, as was his wife, by the way. 
And I'll come on to female letter writers in a minute because they're guilty as hell. <laughs> so Forbes Winslow, I think he liked the limelight. I think he rather liked being the centre of attention. He was certainly an arrogant so-and-so uh, and thought that uh, he understood everything about uh, the criminal mind um, and therefore he could pretty well say what he <laughs> Uh, now we come to uh, one of the very few people who was identified uh, as uh, a letter writer. There are four of these. Three of them are women. One of them, the most obnoxious of them all, is Mariah Coroner. What a ridiculous name. I can't believe it's real. She, I think, is one of those people I would like to dig up and drag around the streets. <laughs> uh, because the damage she did was phenomenal. Uh, she was in her 20s, she came from Bradford, uh, and this man was a hero, James Barry, the executioner. One of the first scientific executioners, if that's the right word, uh, who measured the drop um, and uh, watched closely the movements and the uh, physical size of the person he was about to hang to try and get it right. I think if you can assume that an executioner is humane, James Berry was. When Mariah Coroner had sent her, her letters claiming that she was Jack, that she had left London and had arrived in, in Bradford to spend some time there, um, then she, uh, she was arrested and in her home was found uh, James Berry's card. He gave lectures, as I'm sure you all know, uh, on what it was like to be an executioner, uh, and I'm sure that Mariah would have gone along to at least one uh, and uh, fawned over him and said what a marvellous job he was doing, and isn't it great? She was a ghoul. She was a weirdo. She was an oddball. Uh, and she also made cloaks for a living. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not assuming that uh, cloak makers were necessarily peculiar, um, but this one was. Uh, and basically, she got away with it. The, um, the sentence on her was incredibly light, as it was for the other people involved. Uh, another one was from my own um, hometown area in South Wales, Miriam Howells. She, too, um, had claimed to be Jack. And in her case, it was personal venom against a neighbour, whom she threatened with uh, throat cutting. Again, almost nothing was done. Uh, it's very odd, I think, that a society that did hang people uh, for what today we would regard as relatively minor uh, infringements of, of the law were quite content to let these people go. Although the damage that they did was considerable, and I'll give you a much more modern example of that in a minute. Mr. Lusk. Now, I don't know what to make of this one. I'm prepared to concede that 99.9% .9 of the Ripper letters and the postcards were fakes. They were hoaxes. They were written for a variety of reasons. Now, some were written to be genuinely helpful. Most of the city letters, as I've said, uh, were, have you thought about this particular way of catching the murderer? Some are malicious. You have superb phrases like, you double-dyed villain, which doesn't strike us as being very horrendous today, but it was bad language in 1888. And don't get me started on, you carroty cur. You see, even then, people with ginger hair, mm -hmm. they were going to get it in the neck. 
because they had ginger hair. So you carroty cur. Yeah. Isn't it extraordinary how, how this terrible, terrible personal um, vendetta against perfectly nice and I'm sure delightful people. Um, it's still there. We still have it now. Um, Ginger, we call it today, but nevertheless, it's the same sort of thing. So the charity cur in question was actually having it away with a, with a particular lady uh, and was fathering children all over the place. That was the one thing he could do. That's the one thing you're good at, said the letter, fathering children. Uh, you, you can just hear the seething anger uh, behind all that. Um, there were the pranks. There were the people who thought it was the height of wit and fun uh, to make life as difficult as possible for the police. If the police had followed up every single lead of this kind, uh, well, I don't know, they would have completely imploded. Uh, I am Jack, I will be at a particular place at a particular time, I'm going to kill so-and-so, I'm going to kill so-and-so, uh, I'm going to kill the Queen. Um, and this is just malicious. It is doing it for the sake of it, to make life as difficult for the police force, who were stretched so thin in terms of what the Ripper case was all about, both the Met and the city force. But the bulk of letters, of course, are wannabes. I am Jack. Uh, it's seeking the limelight. It's the attention. Because if somebody does give themselves up and says, I am the person you're looking for, straight away. In 1888, as today, the media are on them. And you won't get them off your computers, off your phones, off your television sets, off your radios, off your newspaper front pages. They will be there. It is absolutely horrendous. And today it's worse because of technology, but it was pretty bad back in 1888 as well. The media was intrusive. The media wanted to catch Jack far more than the police did. And the media didn't help at all in that sense. They simply made life difficult for the police too. They hung around outside police courts and they interviewed people. Um, Mr. Packer, the fruiterer, he was got at. Uh, by the media who pulled him left, right and centre, trying to get the story out of him before the police got to him. By the time they did, uh, he was saying any kind of rubbish because, I suspect, various bungs had been passed his way. These are ordinary working-class people who lived in Whitechapel, who may or may not have known the victim's concern, and they are being used by the media for their own ends. But the Lusk letter is different. Lusk, of course, was chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, um, and he set up this organisation, which I think was highly laudable. Uh, if the police couldn't catch Jack, perhaps these guys could. And they operated um, out of a pub in the East End, and they um, let it be known that they held surgeries, to use a modern term. Uh, they would be available uh, to listen to anybody who had any information at all to pass to them. So Lusk was high profile too. And as soon as his name is in the media, then problems start. The only letter that I think might just, just conceivably be genuine is this one. And you will have your own opinion uh, on that one. Uh, the, the famous Lusk letter. 
From Hell. It's been pinched umpteen times for various book titles, pinched for that appalling film with Johnny Depp, uh, and uh, it won't go away. It, it is the most brilliant postal address I've ever come across. Combine Jack the Ripper, the name, and From Hell, and you've got a surefire winner. Sar. Sar. If you can't get a ginger guy, let's get an Irishman instead, okay? Because, hey, they're everywhere. They were all over the East End of London before the Jews moved in. Uh, they were the enemy. They were blowing up Scotland Yard. They were blowing up the Tower of London. Uh, of course, every Irishman is an enemy of the state. And of course, therefore, an Irishman could have written this letter and could be the Whitechapel killer. Any Irishman here? You see, you're not even admitting it. Even now, you're not admitting it. So, faux Irish, stage Irish. And, oh, there's an Irishman now. Well, well grasped, Lindsay. Well Thank done. Uh, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman. Preserved, misspelled, <coughs> of course. Whoops, sorry. Um, uh, t'other piece, fried t'other piece. Uh, and as it, I can't read it from there at all. Uh, and as it uh, was very nice, uh, may uh, send the, send you the bloody knife that took it out. If only. Uh, you will wait a while longer. Signed, and it's not signed, Jack. It's signed, catch me when you can. Brilliant. Fantastic. And if that was all it was, of course, we could simply dismiss it as another load of hooey. But this one came with half a kidney. Now, I devote a whole chapter in my book to the last letter and the last kidney, and I will confess I'm none the wiser now than I was when I started as to whether this kidney is real or not, as to whether it came from Kate Eddowes or not, as to whether it's even human or not, as to how much of its renal bit was attached or not. And the problem is doctors. Do we have any doctors, ladies and gentlemen? Again, like the Irish people, you're keeping very strong, aren't you? Extraordinary. Doctors will quibble about everything. They will argue the hind leg off a donkey. They will disagree every single time, which is why in courts of law they're brought in for the defence and the prosecution to rubbish the argument from the other side. Um, I don't know, having read every doctor's report I could find, uh, the reality of that kidney. Some said yes, definitely human. Some said yes, it could have been taken from a woman um, found in Mitre Square. Some said no, it couldn't be. Some said, I don't know, the moon's made of green cheese. Uh, we have to remember that medicine was not then what it is today. It was advanced, certainly, but not in the 21st century sense. And I'm always very wary about relying on medical evidence from that long ago. But if any letter is likely to be real, it's this one. Now, there are people called graphologists. Are there any graphologists here in the audience? Very wise to keep strong on that one. Um, because I don't believe a word of it. Um, graphologists will tell you that you can read a great deal psychologically from someone's handwriting. Uh, if you saw my handwriting, as some of you have because you were kind enough to ask me to sign your book, you will think that I'm a real moron. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you'd be right, of course, uh, but the, the, the trouble is you can read anything you like into uprights, slants, loops, whirls, 
you name it, and graphologists say they can detect exactly what kind of person wrote that letter. But if you look at all the Ripple letters, this is the most disturbed. Those letters are a jumble, and you can easily see how that is a jumble of rage. So, did Jack actually succumb? Did the real Whitechapel killer, having seen all the faux letters that were out there, which the press advertised ad nauseam, uh, and they stuck up posters around the whole area with, with copies of the Dear Boss letter, for example, did he finally get tired of all this and say, enough is enough, uh, it's time I got in on the act, because I am the guy they're looking for, and I'm going to prove it by sending half a kidney from a woman I actually killed. Nobody else did that. So maybe this is the real McCoy. Dr. Openshaw um, was the man who uh, was asked to look at Lusk's kidney. He took it to Openshaw uh, at the London Hospital and said, what is this? Is it real? Is it kosher? Um, Openshaw was misquoted by the media. No, surely not. Uh, and backtracked and said, no, no, I didn't actually say that. You know, <clears throat> God, you can see his reputation on the line. Uh, so he, he backtracks. We've seen that a lot in medical criminal history. An awful lot of, of doctors in, in high-profile murder cases have done the same thing. Uh, this was the letter that um, went to him, uh, and I, I love this one. It is as dystrophic as the last letter. It is just as, as chaotic in terms of the handwriting, but it's the poem that I love. Oh, have you seen the devil with his microscope and scalpel, uh, looking at a kidney with a slide cocked up? Doesn't that make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? It does for me every time I read it. He can't spell microscope, of course not. Because most people agree, unless you're Patricia Cornwell, uh, that Jack was a working class man. That he killed people of his own social class. Most serial killers do. They have a comfort zone about that kind of thing. So of course he can't spell microscope. Uh, and he can't spell devil either. Uh, apparently this comes from a, a much older Cornish verse that's been adapted for this particular purpose. But the man who can't spell microscope can spell pathological. What? I'll tell you what. Medical student. That's what. Now I know about these people. I was at university with them, okay. I shared a flat in South London with five of them. And any one of them could have written this letter. Any one of them could actually have slashed women's throats in Whitechapel as well. If you want their names afterwards, come and see me. I will fill you in. It's a medical prank. I can just imagine it now. Ha ha, wouldn't it be funny, have another pint, uh, if we actually take the out of Dr. Openshaw by sending him this letter. Ha! <laughs> what a jolly jape! Uh, and that's precisely what this is. A jolly jape. Making life difficult for Lusk, for Openshaw, for the police, for everybody. Oh God, what a second. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, 
let's move on to something a bit important. Um, in, in my book, as well as obviously looking at, uh, at the, the Ripper letters and, and postcards, uh, I, I looked at other people involved in um, murder and um, writing letters. Uh, this one is Dr. Neil Cream, um, who, as many of you will know, has often been assumed to be Jack. Can I say this once and for all, and I know I don't need to to you guys because you're much better informed than I am, serial killers do not change their M.O. Jack was a blitz serial killer who attacked with a knife in open air. Okay, he did it in, at night in the dark, but he did not administer poison. That's what Neil Cream did. It's a totally different M.O. But Neil Cream did write letters, uh, and uh, he wrote them to exonerate himself. He wrote them to point the finger at somebody else. He also wrote blackmail letters um, throughout his rather sordid career, uh, both in Canada and in this country. And he's the first one I came across, other than the Jack letters, uh, who was involved in uh, being a murderer, who was also a letter writer. This is 1892. Then we move much, much nearer to our own time, and this is the 1960s, the late 60s, a time that fascinates, I think, just about everybody. Um, one or two of you here were probably around in the late 60s, probably still at school like I was, I don't know. Um, but this is the time of Charlie Manson, this is the time of Helter Skelter. Uh, the year before had been the summer of love, Woodstock. Peace, man. And I cringe in embarrassment now at how awful that was. At the time, we assumed it was great. We thought we were all going to change the world, and we were all going to just revolutionise the whole thing. It's like Greta Thunberg today. Uh, and in fact, of course, we all became chartered accountants and, and lawyers and really boring old farts like me, um, just like every generation does. Um, but the dark side to the summer of love was Charles Manson and the Zodiac. Um, I'm sure you've all seen uh, Clint Eastwood's immortal Dirty Harry. If you haven't, do. It is the most brilliant portrayal of a serial killer by Andy Robinson I have ever seen. He calls himself Scorpio in that. It's taken directly from the Zodiac and it is just chillingly breathtaking. So this is the Zodiac written in cryptogram form. So not only did you need to be able to understand uh, what the English says, you've got to be able to read his code as well. And of course, at first, the police couldn't. They eventually cracked it, but it took a while. So this is California, uh, between 1968 and 1971. The Zodiac targeted couples, courting couples usually in cars, and he shot them at point-blank range. He then taunted the police uh, by sending these letters to... Uh, the media. And of course, as you all know, the scary thing about this man is that he was never caught. We don't know any more than we know who Jack was, who the Zodiac Killer was. We know who this guy was. This is David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Uh, and he followed hard on the heels, uh, in a way, ten years later, uh, of uh, the Zodiac Killers operating in New York. He too targeted couples, by and large, and he too shot them at point-blank range. Uh, in fact, at first he was called the 44 caliber killer because of the weapon that he used. Um, then he began to write to uh, the police uh, and to the media, calling himself Son of Sam. And uh, eventually the police caught him, not through his letters, uh, but simply through his own timing. 
Uh, he was basically caught red-handed in various police stakeouts. You probably won't recognize this guy at all. His name is Kaczynski, and here's the Unabomber. Uh, so we have a totally different kind of, of killing going on now. We've got shooting with the Zodiac and um, uh, some of sound. Uh, with this guy, he uses bombs. Uh, nail bombs, first of all, which simply hurt people, then he gravitated to actual murder later on. He targeted universities, he targeted airlines, uh, and he did so for a cause. This man's a PhD uh, in physics and maths. He is a, a brilliant mind. Uh, and I don't think anybody we've mentioned so far has had a brilliant mind. This man genuinely did. So that makes him very, very unusual uh, in the serial killer stakes and, and uh, much, much more dangerous, I think, than most of them. But he too was caught. He was a, a, a dystrophic uh, guy. His, his life fell apart. Uh, and in the end, he wasn't actually very difficult to identify. Uh, still with us, as far as I know, though in jug. I mentioned earlier um, that uh, this was um, a situation where I would dearly love to be able to dig somebody up if necessary and drag them around the streets. And this is the guy I really want to do that to. Uh, so we could all spit on him as he walked past. Because three women died as a result of this man's work. You probably don't recognise him. You probably don't even know the name. He was John Humble. Thank you. Well done. He's Wearside Jack. Um, well, my lookalike, my time twin, uh, Peter Sutcliffe, um, killed a number of women in the Chapeltown area of Leeds. Uh, and I'm sure everybody in this room remembers that. The media coverage was immense. Um, and um, Sutcliffe was a long-distance lorry driver uh, who was able to come and go all over the north. He did not, however, come from Sunderland. This man did. And he sent a letter to George Oldfield, who was in charge of the police case. Uh, and uh, if I can find it in this relevant book, uh, then uh, I, will, I will read it to you. Um, this was in uh, March 1978. George Oldfield was running around in circles trying to catch Sutcliffe and frankly getting nowhere despite the fact that he must have been seen by various people. No one was coming forward, no one uh, had anything to say. This is the classic case of course and the last one really before the police used um, the internet, before they had computer access, when everything was still basically files in shoeboxes. Uh, and because of that, it was so difficult to trace various vehicles uh, in the area, even in red light districts like uh, Chapeltown. Um, so the letter to Oldfield, Dear Sir, I'm sorry I can't give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. Brilliant. I am the Ripper. Great. I've been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. Wow. Psycho, psycho, psycho. Needs the limelight, needs the attention. You and your mates have a clue. That photo in the paper gave, gives me fits. Gives me fits? Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah. Yes, it's from the Dear Boss letter. And that bit about killing myself. 
no chance. I've got things to do. My purpose to rid the streets of them sluts, them sluts, working class terminology, northern terminology. My one regret is that young lassie MacDonald. She was a 16-year-old shop assistant and not remotely on the game. Uh, and did not know the did not know cause changed routine that night. Up to number eight now, you say, but uh, sorry, up to number eight, you say seven, but remember Preston, 75. Now, this was a case the police hadn't put together with the Ripper at all, the Yorkshire Ripper. And suddenly, oh my God, here's another victim we hadn't considered. Made them sit up and take notice. You were right, I travel a bit. Yes, Peter Sutcliffe did. You probably look for me in Sunderland because of the accent that he was later to adopt. And the postage postmark said Sunderland. Don't bother, I'm not daft. Just posted a letter there, one of my, my trips. How clever. He came from Sunderland, but he pretends he's only passing through when he posted this letter. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham, they were the murder sites, uh, and other places. Worn whores to keep off streets. I feel it coming on again. The waves, the cyclical uh, pressure under which serial killers find themselves. Sorry about young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again later. I'm not sure last one really deserved it. Whores getting younger each time. Old slut next time, I hope. Huddersfield, never again. Too small. Close call, last one. And then, of course, um, having sent that uh, to uh, George Oldfield, um, John Humble then followed it up uh, with the um, famous tape. Now, I remember hearing the tape Maybe some of you do. Uh, you were able to use telephone boxes. Remember those? Red things with black things inside them. Ah, press button A, caller. How marvellous. Back in the good old days, we had those. We didn't have things in our pockets that never worked properly. Uh, and um, we, we used to make phone calls. And so Joe Public was able to make free phone calls to listen to this tape. And I did. Yeah. I won't attempt the accent because I can't sustain a Geordie accent. I, I can do two words. I'm Jack. That's I'll do it again for you. I'm Jack. Really. Uh, but I can't do any more. No! Superb! That's pure, pure Sunderland, that is. Uh, I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? And that's exactly how it was back in the autumn of 1888. Charles Warren's boys were not much good, many people thought. They needed help, which is why the helpful letters were sent in, so that they could actually catch this man. Police can't do it, but Joe Public probably can. Uh, I can still hear that chilling, flat... Geordie delivery now. I felt so sorry for George Oldfield. It broke him, didn't it? Completely wrecked the man. He, he resigned shortly afterwards through ill health, uh, and I can't say I blame him. Because the police followed that lead, because they believed that Wearside Jack was the Yorkshire Ripper, and he did come from Sunderland, uh, they went off on a wild goose chase, and three more women died as a result of that. If they'd stuck to Bradford, 
they might, just might, have stayed alive. So this is the man I would really like to drag around the streets. Oh, and Mariah Coroner. And Walter Sickert, while we're about <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have no idea what time it is. Um, forgive me if I've overrun. Forgive me if I'm too short. <laughs> I'll say it again. <laughs> forgive me if I'm too short and ginger. Uh, and uh, I, can, I can only apologise if that's the case. But if you have any questions, I, I will try to answer. I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not even a psychologist. I'm a plain old-fashioned historian. Um, but I've tried in the last few minutes, and I've tried it in this book, uh, to look at the reasons why people took to print in the autumn of 1888, and why people still go on the internet now uh, and come out with similar tripe. Thank you very much. Yes, he did. And that, then that, that, that's true. That's true. Him. Yep. Uh, Zodiac, of course, stabbed the two. They yep. Accosted by the side. Yep. Yep. Ramirez shot some, mm. stabbed others. Mm -hmm. So M.O. Yeah. does. Yes. Yes. Thanks very much. That's absolutely sense. right. The, the the stabbing, I'm sure, is, mm. is a deliberate. This is not just random. It's not chance. Uh, there's a deliberate follow up there. Yep. Thank you. Yes, sir. Just to say, there is a short article on Where's Our Jack in this month's uh, White Jack Society Joe. Gotcha, okay. When uh, uh, you, you say a short article, madam, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no offence. <laughs> that, any more questions? Yeah. Back, um, I was interested in one point you I love the talk, it's fantastic. Only one? Good lord. <laughs> I love it all. It's Thank you, very sweet. But you mentioned. Um, one thing I was trying to find out when I was doing um, what I did, the graphic novel, try to slime time from all the good books. When you actually do a book, you, your mind goes into a, another place. You, you want to get to the bottom of all the things yes. that you thought you already knew. Yes. You go over and over and over. Yep. Yep. And the one thing that um, nobody could actually answer the question for, that you've perhaps done today, and this was um, Don and Stuart Evans, was would Abilene have gone into the city, yeah, on, uh, the Edo's would Abilene have been allowed, or would he have gone into that jurisdiction of the city? And you said that there was more of a communication between the Met and the city police, and I've not heard that before. Yes. Actually yeah, yeah, the, 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 there were eventually, and I couldn't give you an actual date uh, precisely, but there were eventually um, weekly meetings uh, between the Met, including Abilene, Swanson on the one hand, and I don't know who the city guys were, but they did definitely meet up and they did um, share um, evidence and information. Yes. I can't think of his name now, but he was an inspector. The city the man. City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I can't. Tip my tongue. Apparently, he didn't confide very much. Did he not? Okay. okay. And w was was that for selfish reasons? He wanted the city yeah. to get there? Yeah. They also, okay. they also the home office. They had no jurisdiction. I no, guess. no, exactly. Sure. Asked yep. uh, the city force for their yep. uh, 
views on the on the case. Yes. And they sent them, McWilliam, I think it was. Well done, McWilliam, good man. Um, yeah, it was. He um, sent them a letter, James McWilliam, and at the bottom of it, um, uh, I think the Home Office Permanent Secretary has annotated, they obviously don't want to tell us anything. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Okay. Any more for any more? Mine. Did you know that John Humble had died last year? He changed yeah. his name to yeah. John Anderson. I'm sorry, say again. John Humble died last year. Did you know? Yes, I did. Yeah, he yeah. changed his name to Anderson. Uh, how interesting. Do you, do you know where he's buried, Lindsay? Because I really want to dig him up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> She's already done it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I I'll just say I was a teenager of the sixties. And in the early 70s, I became a chartered accountant. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Wonderful. And how do you, how do you plan to change the world when you're a teenager? Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. All right. Well, I'm glad. That's brilliant. You should have seen his hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Just a quick one. Right. Um, I think you might have upset a few Geordies. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think he's a Mackham. He's a Mackham, yeah. Oh, he's is he? Is he? Yeah, is he? If oh, you are up that way, uh, yeah. you're doing your speech, don't say Jordan. Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me let me explain about this. I, I, I record my own novels in Whitley Bay, okay? Uh, and I've got a wonderful team up there. They're really terrific guys. A guy called Dean in particular. And uh, he's there in his booth, and I'm there in my booth, and I'm, I'm recording the, the Strait series, which is full of accents, but I can't do a Geordie, as I said, and I've got one character in the 17 books who is a Geordie. He only has two lines, but I said, Dean, I can't do this. You've got to help me here. You've got to talk me through it. He said, I'm from Southampton, man. I can't do it either. <laughs> so there we are. But yet, yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. They're, they're extremely sensitive. Oh, yeah. So my apologies, Geordies. Um, uh, you, nobody, no, I didn't ask if you any Geordies here, did I? But you've all denied being doctors and Irishmen, and uh, there's one Great honest one. ginger gentleman in my name. So, my apologies. Any more? Okay, I can thank everyone to thank Maestro. Someone's walking over my script. And that was MJ Tro at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank MJ Tro, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you will find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews conference presentations and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>